I love birthdays. I love celebrating birthdays. In fact, my calendar is littered with literally hundreds of people's birthdays on my calendar. And that's really important to me. I try to take time when I see somebody's birthday just to send a quick note, a text, celebrate that they made it another trip around the sun, right? And uh, we had a birthday in our family this past week. My youngest daughter turned 18 which is really hard to believe, doggone it. Uh, Just seems like yesterday she was born. In fact, she was almost born on Labor Day. She was born the day after Labor Day. On Labor Day 2003, my wife and then two kids spent most of the day picking uh, peaches at an orchard near our home. And then we got home and we started heading toward bed and my wife said, I think it's time. I mean, what else do you do on Labor Day but go into labor, right? So we made our way to the hospital and we brought our bouncing baby girl into the world. We did not know what we were having with this third child, boy or girl. So that kind of made it fun and exciting and mysterious all in the same. And so when she was born, um, I made my way down the hallway, turned right and made my way down another hallway to the waiting room where my parents and my in-laws were waiting to hear about the arrival of this baby. And when I rounded the corner, you could still hear her screaming from the delivery room. And she's been that loud ever since. But uh, I'm so glad, that I'm just so proud of the woman that she's becoming. And it's hard to believe she's going to be graduating from high school. And just I'll stop there before I get, you know, all that worked up about that. But I love birthdays. And today we're actually going to celebrate the birthday of the church. Last weekend, Paul Lingy did a great job kicking off this new series that we've entitled Acts of the Holy Spirit. And what we're trying to do is look through the book of Acts and watch how the Holy Spirit empowered people like you and me, ordinary people, to carry on the mission and ministry of Jesus by actually living and loving like Jesus. That is exactly how they did it. And so last week, something that Paul said that I really picked up was that right now we're here in Warwick County in Southern Indiana in the tri-state area worshiping as followers of Christ, all because those first followers were obedient to the mission, to the commission that Jesus gave them to go to all the world and make disciples. And you and I who are followers of Jesus are here today because of their obedience. Now, as we continue to look through the book of Acts, what we want to do is continue to understand how these individuals who followed Jesus, how they lived and loved like him and how that changed the world. Because I believe that it did, right? Those individuals who were followers of Jesus began being identified and gathering as followers of Jesus. And that gave birth to the church, the birthday of the church is actually recorded for us in the book of Acts in Acts chapter two. And it begins with a powerful moment on the day of Pentecost. Now the day of Pentecost was actually part of what in the Old Testament was commanded festival. It was the festival of weeks or the feast of weeks. The feast of weeks was one of the six celebrations that were commanded by the Old Testament law for God's people to celebrate. The day of Pentecost came 50 days after Passover. And it actually was the first day after Passover, which, or excuse me, the first day after the Sabbath, which meant it was a Sunday. That's why you and I are gathered here today as Christ followers on Sunday, because it's the first day of the week. And it was this moment when the church was given birth. If you've been reading through the book of Acts with us, you have had the chance to read the the powerful moments that took place. Let me just recap them. First of all, there was a powerful coming of the Holy Spirit. 
It came with a sound of a violent wind and these flames of fire that landed on the 11 apostles' head. This was a fulfillment of what Jesus promised would happen when he said these words in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is now with and in these disciples and all of those who will decide to follow Jesus. That's what Peter states is a reality in this sermon that's recorded in Acts 2. He preached it on the day the church was born. And he quoted the prophet Joel saying these words. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Again, all that we see happening in the book of Acts is according to God's promise and his plan. Something supernatural was taking place in this moment. The Holy Spirit was giving these apostles the ability to speak languages they had never spoken before or had ever learned. And those in Jerusalem who were gathered from lots of nationalities who spoke lots of different languages heard the message of God in their own language. Many were amazed at what they saw happening, and some thought the apostles were drunk, okay? And so next what happens is Paul preaches a powerful message to explain what's happening. He boldly proclaims the truth about Jesus by what power these things are all happening and why. And it was a powerful proclamation of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We sang about that same gospel story earlier in our worship time. But listen to what Paul, or excuse me, what Peter says is the gospel. Acts 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But... God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The Holy Spirit empowered Peter to be bold, to be clear, and also to be convincing. And that leads to what we see finally there, a powerful response from those who heard the message that day. Acts 2.37 records the response. Listen to what Luke describes. He says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. The birth of the church was miraculous that first day, but it did not stop there. 
The book of Acts records several summary statements that describe how the church was growing in number as well as impact. And it's important to realize that at this point in history, this group of followers of Jesus were, we, were not referred to by the word church. It wasn't being used yet. When it did, it didn't represent a physical locality. It actually described a group of people with a common identity and a common mission. It still should today. As we look through the book of Acts, there's two specific summaries we want to focus on today, one recorded in Acts 2 and one in Acts 4, describing the church. And I thought it might be helpful to ask maybe three basic questions about uh, this so that we could get our arms around what this description of who these people are, what they were doing, and why they exist. So let's start first with this question, who made up the church? The very next verse in Acts 2, Acts 2.42, begins with the word they. Who are the they that they are describing, right? Well, this group consisted of people from all kinds of backgrounds. It consisted, first of all, of the 11 apostles. This group was the original 12 people that Jesus invited to follow him as disciples. They had watched Jesus, how he lived and how he loved and committed themselves to living and loving in the exact same way. They were joined by a larger group of individuals who had also decided to follow Jesus. Luke in Acts 1, verse 14 and 15, describes that this number was about 120 people and included Jesus' mother Mary, his brothers, and also many other men and women. Then those who heard Peter's message that day on Pentecost in Jerusalem also are part of this group. And Luke describes them as people who are Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, other parts near Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. A lot of words to describe that these are people who make up really every portion of the known world at this time. People from everywhere were part of this group called the church. That's quite a collection of people. And I hope you notice the diversity. From the very beginning, the church was made up of people from a wide variety of people groups, nationalities, ethnicities, cultures, languages, genders, walks of life, ways of thinking. Yet they had one powerful thing in common, their allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. My prayer is that Crossroads would become a place that is more reflective of the diversity that is around us in our very community, as well as a reflection of this church that was given birth to on the day of Pentecost, as well as a picture of the church at the culmination of all things that's described in the book of Revelation, where all people, all nations, all tribes, all languages are surrounding the throne of God. Oh God, would you make that true about our fellowship today? Jesus prayed for unity. And from the very first day of the church, they were experiencing it. I love how it describes this group of people. Not that they were doing things together, but they were together. That's a description of their heart more than just their behavior. And there's a, a plethora of inclusive language recorded in Acts 2 and Acts 4, where it's like they, everyone, all, together. And it culminates in the summary statement in Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
May God continue to make that true about all those who follow Jesus, who are part of this congregation, in this city, in our country, and throughout our world. That's the who. Now, what were they doing? Well, Acts 2, 42 and 40 through 47, and Acts 4, 32 and 33, describe the behavior of those who were gathering as the church. Here's some of the things that they did together. First of all, they learned together. They were learning from the teaching of the apostles how to live and love like Jesus. And the apostles were being obedient to Jesus' commission when he says, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And they were. They spent time together. They met together in the temple courts. They went over to each other's homes. They met often, regularly, consistently, and daily. They ate together. No good gathering of Jesus followers is ever complete without something to eat, my friends. And that's still true today, right? But they enjoyed being together in each other's homes. They shared meals together, and they also celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They were remembering his life, his death, his resurrection, and Jesus has instructed them to do when he celebrated the Passover meal with his first followers. They never wanted to forget what Jesus had done for them on their behalf. They were proclaiming his death and his resurrection by celebrating that sacred meal. They worshiped together. Acts 2 says they were praising God together. They prayed together. They prayed for each other and they prayed with each other. And also they cared for each other and for those around them. They didn't consider anything that they had as mine. They considered it ours. They willingly sold things they owned to provide for the needs of others, both among them and around them. They were compassionate. They were caring. They were generous. All that is a description of what can happen when a group of people unite themselves around a common cause. And this cause was certainly Christ-centered. I got to experience a little taste of that last weekend as I participated in Hood to Coast 2021. It's a 200-mile relay from Mount Hood in Oregon all the way to the Oregon coast. I was part of a group from World Vision, and there were about 95 people on our team, all broken up into groups of 12. The group of 12 I was part of was Team Indiana, six men, six women from the great state of Indiana. And we were part of something that only God could do. One, it took God's help to get us all 199 miles from the mountain to the sea. But also, we were able to raise $1,133,000 for World Vision's work in South Sudan. That's something only God can do. We give him glory for that, for sure. It was fun just to be a small piece of that and to watch God prompt hearts for all of us who are strangers to come together around a common vision and to give generously. And I think many of you who gave and participated in that, it's something that, that what God can do when all of our hearts are focused on something that's for his good and for his glory and for the good of others. I also see that in many other expressions around Crossroads. One expression of that is our work with the CARE portal right here in this city. In May, we introduced you to the CARE portal. And the CARE portal is something that's working alongside the foster care system right here in our community to prevent kids from being taken out of their homes, if at all possible, and in their best interest. And so the CARE portal allows families to post needs and those needs to be responded to by people like you and me. And I'm happy to say that over 30 needs have been posted since May and met by people just like you living right here in our community. 
I'm also excited that 40 of you from here at Crossroads have stepped up to volunteer in the care portal. And it's not too late. You can go to this address, cccgo.com forward slash care portal. You can find information about the care portal and also sign up to be part of it. I thought you might be encouraged by just a testimonial from Amaris. She is like our volunteer coordinator for the the care portal. Listen to what she said. This is a a firsthand email, a, a story that she shared. She said, last week, a request came through for a mother with a medically fragile four-year-old girl. I felt God tugging on my heart to fill the entire need, but I did not have the means to do that on my own, and we did not have any additional responders yet. That night, I went to the first Care Portal Info meeting, and we shared this request. A woman at the meeting decided to give $40 to help us meet that need. I left the meeting still feeling like God wanted us to fill the entire need, And so I was discussing it with a 19-year-old girl who used to be in my small group, whose name is Bethany. The need for a booster seat with a back, pull-ups and wipes, and clothes for the young girl, that was the full need. I knew we could cover a decent number of pull-ups and wipes with the $40, but I was unsure about the clothes and the booster. It was then that Bethany announced that she had a booster seat with a back in her bedroom. What? A 19-year-old girl with a booster seat? She told me that a mom she used to babysit for bought it for her car and asked her to donate it after she was finished watching their children. Having most of the need met then at this point, I feel in feeling a direct message from God that he was going to work out the rest, even if it was in the most bizarre way. I decided to say that we would meet the full need. From there, I texted one close friend who I knew had girls around this age, knowing she recently went through all of her children's clothing and they might not have anything left. The next morning, she dropped off two full garbage bags of clothes for the girl's size as well as her neck's size. It felt like a miracle. God is the only possible way that this need could have been filled with a random lady, a teenage girl, and one text message. When I dropped off these items at the drug rehab facility, the mom was extremely emotional and grateful. She was doing her best to take care of her daughter who had physical and mental needs. Also, I felt like God was still telling me to follow up with her, so I decided to get a stuffed animal for the girl and write an encouraging card. This is where it gets crazy, Amherst says. My son wanted to go to the Dollar Tree, and I reluctantly agreed. While we were there, I decided to pick up some of the items for them, maybe like a crossword puzzle, some books, some beauty items. And I was standing in line to purchase these items, thinking that I really needed to stop spending money. When the lady ahead of us told the cashier to give her change to the next person in line, I thanked her and I said, I just think you should know that the money you gave is going to help a mother in rehab to take care of her special needs daughter while she tries to get her feet back, tries to get back on her feet. At this, the woman pulled out $200 from her wallet, handed it to me and said, I want you to use this toward this woman or anyone else who needs help. Mason, my son, has told everyone that this is a miracle. And I have to agree. Miracles are happening around us. And the miraculous was happening at the beginning of the church as well. If you continue to read through the book of Acts, you'll see that the Holy Spirit was working in ordinary people like you and me to accomplish things that only God can do. And they impacted the world in the way that he wants to. Another summary statement from Luke is Acts 4.33. He says, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. The church, what did it exist to do? 
Well, the church existed to accomplish the mission of God, to reconcile people back to him. Acts 2.47 records, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Basically saying it was happening. What started as 11 people became 120, became 3,120 with those 3,000 additions on the day of Pentecost. And just next chapter in chapter five, Luke mentions that 2,000 more people joined them in just a few short days. They were all participating in the mission of reconciling, reconciling people back to God. That's why Jesus came. That's what he did. And that's what his followers should do as well. That's the whole so what of us living and loving like Jesus. So others will come to know and experience the love of God. The church was never designed to be a cruise ship where somebody with a ticket gets to get on and enjoy the amenities all by themselves. No, the church was designed to be a battleship with a very clear mission to rescue anyone and everyone, to leverage all the resources to that end of helping people who have not yet experienced the love of God come to know the saving grace of Jesus. That's our mission. And the way that we go about it is by living and loving like Jesus. Again, the rest of the book of Acts records how the Holy Spirit empowered people just like you and me to do just that. It describes us as witnesses. You might not be familiar with what that term might be, but to be a witness is just to be a simply a person who does know about Jesus, who's telling people who don't know about Jesus what God has made possible through his death and resurrection. It wasn't an evangelistic program that they were like exercising. No, they were just living such spirit-filled lives. Then the way that they lived and the way that they loved was attractive to those who noticed and said, I want what they have. When you and I live and love like Jesus, people are attracted to him. And that's why the church exists. You know, the birth of the church was characterized by some radical things, like a radical commitment. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, to prayer. They also experienced a radical unity. They had everything in common, Acts says, I think they had in common what really mattered. They expressed a, a radical compassion toward anyone who had need. They gave of themselves voluntarily and freely and generously. They gave what they had so that others who didn't could have. They also provided a radical witness. It says everyone was in awe of what was happening. Not in the supernatural as much, but in the spiritual, what the Holy Spirit was doing. Radical does not mean the exception. Radical means exactly the ordinary thing that the church is supposed to be doing. Sky Jethini in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer, writes, we've been told by the culture, both outside and inside the church, that a radical life is determined by visible influence. Our impact must be obvious, measurable, and shareable on social media. The definition, however, is betrayed by the word's origin. Radical comes from the Latin radicalis, meaning root. It speaks of the invisible part of the plant that gives it strength and life. The truly radical Christian is not the one whose life appears extraordinary, but the one whose unseen communion with God is extraordinary. I think that's what made these people 
such a bright light for Christ. But here's the reality. Most of our world today is not experiencing the church for what it was birthed to be. I don't think it's the culture around us that's limiting the impact of the church and who it was birthed to be because we're called to be salt and light in a decaying world. That was expected from the very beginning. I don't think it's the polarizing political environment we find ourselves in in our country because the church globally is thriving in much more hostile political situations. It could be easy to point to a worldwide pandemic and say, ah, it's COVID that's limiting the church today. Trust me, I'd like to blame everything I can on COVID, right? You with me? But the church has survived and thrived facing much worse. I certainly believe it could be fair to recognize the devastating impact of moral failures by church leaders that have caused hurt and dysfunction and even disdain on the bride of Christ. It'd be real easy to point to the lack of diversity that is among most churches today as a contributing force since the church has been marked by unity and diversity from the very beginning. But I think if we really want to evaluate and even recalibrate the church to who it was birthed to be, I think we got to go back to that simple kid finger exercise. You remember it when you said, this is the church, this is the steeple, open the doors and there's all the people. If we really want to evaluate the state of the church, it actually starts with this. It starts with these people, you and me, those of us who have called ourselves followers of Jesus. We have to ask ourselves, are we? Following the example of those first followers of Jesus, could you and I be marked by lives that live and love like Jesus? Are we fulfilling the purpose of the church for which it was birthed? Do you and I have the same type of devotion that those first followers did to learning and growing in our faith? Have we prioritized other activities above gathering with other followers of Jesus, learning and serving others? Have we just become a consumer instead of a contributor? Do you and I have a narrow-mindedness, a selfishness, a distractedness, or just plain apathy that keeps us from participating and experiencing what the church was birthed to be? Are you and I relying on the Holy Spirit to help us live and love like Jesus and fulfill his mission? Well, two weekends ago, uh, the elders of Crossroads and some of our key leaders gathered for a three-day retreat. We were blessed to meet at the Welburn Baptist Foundation community room that's located on the 15th floor of the 5th 3rd building. Something that's really cool about that is at the 15th floor of the 5th 3rd building, that is actually the highest occupied level of, of business in our entire city. It looks down on the entire city. I love the fact that the Welburn Foundation is at the top. It's bathing everything that happens in our city in prayer and with Christ-centeredness. That's just my perspective. There's a beautiful view from the 15th floor. You can see the beautiful Ohio River. You can actually see the promised land from there right across the river. That's, uh, you know, my place of my birth. It's also cool to see the first building of the first Christian church that gave birth to Crossroads 53 years ago. That was awesome to see. We gathered in that room just to ask two questions. Where are we as a congregation and where's God leading us in the next year? I ran that morning a training run for this big hood to coast run and I was actually running in Newburgh along the same river, uh, just almost the exact same view. And uh, I noticed as I was running something up to my left, there was a big pile of rubble 
I thought, what in the world has gone on up there in such a short, such a short amount of time? So I ran up the hill to see. And I recognized the location. It actually was the site where a church building used to sit. And I wondered, like, how fast could that have been destroyed? I, I promise it was just there the week before. So with a little investigation, I discovered that that building had been demolished because in 2019, the people who were part of that congregation decided it would be better for them to cease to exist than to continue to function as an expression of the body of Christ. They had met for 179 years prior to that. And they came to the conclusion it was best just to close than to continue. Was the Holy Spirit finished? Oh, I don't think so. But I'll be honest, I, that reality began to haunt me a little bit. It may have been, you know, exacerbated by the fact I was listening to a podcast as I ran that morning, a podcast created by Christianity Today. It was a, an expose on a, a church that was located out in Seattle, Washington, called Mars Hill, led by a guy named Pastor Mark Driscoll. Uh, the podcast is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it just Details through extensive investigation, what caused that church to rise and to fall and to collapse? Like, is that irony or is that providence? And it haunted me to think, like, would there ever be a day where I'd be running down Lincoln Avenue and I'd look over to where there used to be a big old building with lots of thousands of people who gathered there, but it's no more. It's kind of like the Robert Stadium site where there used to be something, now it's just grass. Oh God, let that never happen. Well, what would keep it from happening? Well, I believe that the Holy Spirit is active today, just like it was 53 years ago, just like it was 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. And it's working, he is working, through people like you and me who make a decision to not let the church end. It's the birth of the church, not the death of a church. And God's still on his throne, and he's still looking for people like you and me who will open our lives up to the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us to accomplish his mission in the world around us today. So let us never forget that the book of Acts is really a history, a history of the church. And chapter two is a very pivotal moment in the history of that church where the church was birthed. And it cannot be removed from its connection with Acts 1 where the believers are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, they get busy in the mission of being the church. And my prayer is that you and me, just ordinary people, would let the Holy Spirit work in us so powerfully that the world around us would begin to change. The more that we live like the believers that are recorded in the book of Acts, the more the Lord will add to our number daily those who are being saved, fulfilling his mission by living and loving like his son, Jesus. Would you join me in praying to that end right now? God, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you have recorded the stories of ordinary men and women who filled with your Holy Spirit have done supernatural things through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I see those things happening around us. I see lives being changed. I see people being healed. I see marriages being restored. God, I see faith being strengthened. God, I see generation rising up to lead your church. And God, I pray that that work would continue. God, may there never be a day where a couple of us decide that it's just not worth continuing. God, I pray that all of us would be invigorated through the 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 blood in our veins that comes straight from your image.
to be infused with your Holy Spirit, to live and to love like Jesus in such a way that people notice. They notice there's something different about us, and they want what we have. God, may we freely give as we freely receive. Lord, I pray that you continue to change hearts and lives and minds and relationships and futures. God, I pray that you continue to change this world by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us and through us. All for your glory, God, I pray, through Christ. Amen.